See, Mercury's in Lucas Lucasload again. Those Victorians would do anything for a health kick. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a podcast looking at unfamiliar places across the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Denby with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture and the whys behind travel itself. So join with me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. Hello. I'm recording this on a different setup. I've got some slightly dodgier and flimsier headphones and microphones, and I'm using a different computer. I'm not covered myself in a duvet. This is because all of my stuff is in Salford, and I'm in Glasgow. But anyway, apologies for the sound quality that may result in this episode. But anyway, you might want to know, why did I call this episode? Everything is going to be alright. I mean, you know, it's clearly not. Well, it's a mantra that I've been repeating to myself quite a lot over the past month or so. If I say it enough, I might actually believe it. See, thing is, and you may have got a slight impression from my last episode, I'm in the middle of change right now. I'm moving to Manchester after two years in Glasgow. And while the move itself has been relatively simple, much more so than the move I had up to Glasgow, and there was no problems and no reason to call on the services of my VA, for instance. I don't know what, you know, I pay her for these days, given that she no longer does Pinterest either. Oh, wait, I know what she does. She runs my newsletter, my YouTube account, my OnlyFans account, edits my videos, and generally harasses me to make sure I get stuff done. And listens to me when I whinge. One of those is a lie. I don't have an OnlyFans, obviously. Feet find pay better rates. Anyway, yeah, the move down to Salford has been without much hassle at all, but that doesn't mean it was entirely emotionless and angsty in my own head. And the first weekend alone deserves some mention, as it was a veritable roller coaster of feeling. And I'm doing this partly so that I can, you know, write down and, and express exactly my thought processes, because I know it's been a little hard for me to explain, and explain well. I'm not much used to explaining my emotions, let's be honest, and even acknowledging them sometimes is a bit of a hassle. The main, main issue, I think, in it all is to do with comfort zones. I've been in one in Glasgow, clearly. It's partly because Glasgow itself is a lovely city where I've definitely felt very much at home. But also the fact that, you know, the flat that I've been in, it's not just its location, although that definitely helps. Laura's amused at my giddiness for being near stuff. But that's because I spent most of my life in middle-class residential suburbia, where, you know, there's just roads and roads of endless housing, with maybe a corner shop or the British equivalent of a 7-Eleven, somewhere within, you know, a ten-minute walk. Here, for pretty much the first time, it's not felt like a drag if I needed to head out to buy something more substantial than a loaf of bread. So, leaving a place within staggering distance of an actual high street felt a little bit of a drag. We'll come back to that point later. The other aspect, and the one I've been least able to clarify or quantify, is probably the strongest, to be fair. It's the flat itself. 
it's not just that it's a comfortable, large and livable flat. It's also that it's in you know, a pretty quiet location. It's also the admin around the flat. I've had a decent letting agent, a very, very good and friendly landlord, or at least the landlord's dad, the landlord himself has moved to you know, Canada or some such. And the flat itself came with pretty much everything I'd ever need. So I don't have to go through the process of buying items like a vacuum cleaner, a frying pan or a coat stand. And as I say, it's it's a very comfortable and uh, whatever the opposite is of a perfect storm uh, that, you know, a flat where people all over Brenteldom would hunger games for. And I'm willingly giving it up for somewhere less complete. So. My first two big emotions in getting the keys to the flat in Manchester were A. I have left my comfort zone of two years and 2. Why the feck do I not have a coat rack? Or, you know, a bin. There is no kitchen bin. I thought those kind of things came as standard in a furnished flat. That Friday was, you know, a really warm day too. I'd been on a megabus for four hours and was carrying three fairly hefty bags. So I get to the flat and walk in after initially not being able to because I wasn't given a combination coat to one of the doors, and find it's got the barest minimum of furnishment. It's got beds, mattresses, a couple of tables in the kitchen diner, a sofa, and that's about it. A small number of plates, no cutlery. So much stuff I was going to need to buy that I hadn't expected to. I know it's quite a small thing in the wider scheme of things, but, well, it was lots of small things. Lots of small things. Each one on its own, you know, it's fairly inconsequential, but take them all together and with my already fractious emotional state caused by the journey and by leaving my comfort zone meant that I pretty much cried myself to sleep on the Friday night, mainly wondering if I was doing the right thing and why I was throwing away something nice, settled and comfortable. I need to point out that it's not the move itself that affected me. It wasn't the act of moving. I've moved enough times and it's always been the right thing to do. I guess it was just that I'd never felt quite the affinity and attachment to somewhere as I had for the flat in Glasgow. The second most emotional move I'd ever had in my life was when I sold my house in Birmingham so many years ago. But that was almost the exact opposite situation. It was the feeling I had to sell up and move on and that I was emotional then, you know, for something that had never happened. In a sense, I was emotional over what it should have been rather than what it turned out to be. And by selling up, it was my way of making a new start. It was a nice house, don't get me wrong, but it should have been our house and not my house. Relationships suck, but that's not why I'm asexual. Rather, it's because I'm asexual that that one sucked slightly more than it ought to have done. That wasn't the only reason. If you know, you know. But this is not therapy. And everything is going to be all right. I really like Glasgow. As I say, it's a lovely city. It's a place I felt comfortable, a place that felt like me and that I could be me. But the main problem with it is it's basically a dead end. When I was travelling earlier in the year, it was very clear just how much of a dead end it was. When it was cheaper to fly from Malta to London Gatwick overnight in London and then get the train or bus back up to Glasgow the next day than it was to fly directly to Glasgow. Or even Edinburgh, in truth. And travel between Glasgow and, well, pretty much anywhere that isn't Edinburgh, is itself neither cheap nor convenient. My side hustle of my travel blog, and of course this pod, could benefit greatly from socialising with others in the same field, and brands and organisations I could network with and work alongside. The majority of these 
are based in London. Occasionally, they might deign to do stuff in Manchester or Leeds or some such. Pretty much nobody goes as far north as Scotland. Which is, of course, annoying and ridiculous. There's so much up here that, you know, gets pretty much ignored. But it is what it is, I guess. And Glasgow to London is an expensive five-hour train ride when it runs, and when you can get a ticket for it. And if there's ever a problem on the line anywhere, it's really hard to find alternatives. A tree fell on the overhead power cables near Milton Keynes once. It inconvenienced people in Birmingham and Manchester, and pretty much cut Glasgow off from the rest of the country. Or it's a cheap eight to ten hour overnight, or full day uncomfortable bus ride, or a flight. And on this note, as an aside, going up to Glasgow on Tuesday for the last time in the current guise to do the last remnants of the flat admin, a signalling failure near Carlisle had me not just leaving Wigan 25 minutes late, but then getting stuck in Preston for over five hours as they cancelled all the trains, including one I was on. Some pubs were visited. Extraordinary circumstances required extraordinary responses, and I was in the Weatherspoons with two halves before midday, which never happens. Weatherspoons was the only thing open in the morning. I did find a better real ale establishment later. Lots of other people on those trains were frustrated and stayed at the station. Whereas Manchester is a regular and convenient couple of hours by train from London. And to be honest, even if there's a problem on that West Coast main line, there's an alternative that isn't too awkward or additionally lengthy. It's four to five hours by coach still, but that's still not prohibitively long for an event and doesn't knock out pretty much two entire days. But convenience to London isn't the only thing. If I wanted convenience for London, I'd, you know, move to London. This isn't going to happen in the near future, more for cost reasons than anything else. Last weekend, I helped Laura move out of her flat in Zone 2, which, my house in Kirkby and Ashfield is more salubrious and doesn't come with letting agent baggage. Or mould. Maybe damp. And the total rent they were charging for something for three people was, you know, that was smaller in area than my flat in Glasgow, was also quite a bit more than I paid in Glasgow. Prices get more affordable the further out you get, but apparently Laura doesn't want to live in Ilford or Croydon. Her view is, if I have to live in Zone 5, I'd rather live in Manchester. V's suggestion of Milton Keynes was given short shrift by both of us for fairly obvious reasons. But that, Milton Keynes, and places like it, is the subject for a future podcast episode. Now, the main reason, in fact, is community. People are the lights of every city, according to the opening titles of a lesser-remembered 1990s TV sitcom, City Lights. And taking advantage of that was a large part of why I'm dragging myself out of this comfort zone. And it started early. I woke up on that first Saturday, uncomfortably warm because hot air rises and the new flat, shall we say, isn't on the first floor, or the second, or indeed on any floor with a single-digit number. Good view, though. And I went to Parkrun. My new local park run, Peel, flat, wasn't pushing it because still coming back from injury, so taking it easy, did it in about the same time as I did my very first park runs when I was unfit, and some of the ones at Queen's Park when I was fit, and which is not flat, which suggests that I'm still quite fit despite everything else. Interesting course, by the way, two laps of one of the oldest parks in Greater Manchester, and they're not even the same course, both laps. The first lap runs along the River Irwell from what, on what can best be described as corrugated concrete. The second lap goes along the park path just above it and to the left. The bit along the river is a wide section but even so I fear I'd still find it easy to fall in and obviously I mean specifically being here no one else seemed to be worried about it 
There's a couple of hundred metres later in the lap on gravel, so no, I wasn't running barefoot. But even so, it's not that bad of a course. Very popular, though, like I think 350 people or so turned up. If we got half of that at Queen's, it was a good day. Not as popular as Southwark Parkrun, but that's something for later. Because chronology, because Southwark is absolutely not in Manchester, obviously. But that, for instance, Peel Parkrun is popular, is merely one aspect of my weekend, and full of continued reminders as to why I chose this move in the first place. Saturday afternoon, I went to a meet-up of the Manchester area fetish community. For those of you not in the know, Kingsters will often have completely vanilla meet-ups in pubs or cafes or whatever, where they all get together and chat and whatnot. These are called munches, much to our amusement when thinking about cute names for cafes and monster munch crisps which are not technically crisps, but that's a debate for another day. And it's a good way for people to meet up in a setting where there's no subtext for expectation. Anyway, I never found a convenient one in Glasgow. There were munches on Tuesday or Wednesday evenings, but over in Hamilton or Coatbridge one way, or Greenock the other, actual Glasgow meets seemed quite rare, and those that there were tended to be towards the West End. So it's interesting that less than 24 hours after moving to the Manchester area, I was in a very gay pub, a very very gay pub, in the gay village, talking about my moving down, dystopian fiction, and how being kinky with an ex-girlfriend cost me 50 quid, which I'll go into in a future pod about travelling for illicit activity. Definitely one for Full Swap Radio listeners there. And also winning a both a fluffy bee and a solid plastic ball gag in a raffle. A pretty successful day, even if the pub did fly its non-binary flags upside down. As for Sunday, well, when I moved to Glasgow, I found out that there was a queer bookshop not far from the flat, category IS, and I popped in there to ask about local communities. That's how I found out about the non-binary night meetups, for instance. Having now moved to Manchester, I figured I'd do the same thing. Over in the northern quarter, there's a bookshop called Queer Lit. I popped in there and said, I've just moved, what have you got? The chap in there said, pretty much, well, this is just off the top of my head, so this is all I can remember and then reeled off ten things and places to look at. This included an Arrow Ace group, who will be meeting m- monthly. There is an Arrow Ace group in Glasgow. They cover the whole of Scotland, though, and meet up irregularly. And when they do, it's in places like Aberdeen and Dundee. I met them once in Glasgow. There were about seven of them. Anyway, one of the places the bookshop suggested was a lesbian-run, queer-friendly cafe called the Feel Good Cafe. They do food, drink, and entertainment, including things like open mic nights. While I was in there, I was approached by someone who said, Are you the barefoot backpacker? I think I follow you on Instagram. Turns out, not only had we known each other online for several years, they'd actually even contributed to my podcast, way back in episode 7, about sexuality while travelling. They were in there with their community, which is how I ended up gatecrashing the Trans Pride picnic, held inside because of bad weather, and why I spent much of the afternoon wandering around Manchester city centre with four trans and NBs I'd never met before including entering the alternative indie Affleck shopping block, where I found a shop that's a retailer for the run-and-fly dungarees I'm often seen wearing. I also found out just how heavy a wheelchair is to push, especially when doing it up a small incline. But the thing here is community. Glasgow is lovely, as I keep saying, and I will say it for the rest of my days, but it's small. Shut up, Laura. I mean, it's clearly not small, but equally, within an hour of Manchester Piccadilly, there are more people than the whole of Scotland. While there's a lot in Glasgow, it's limited in the sense that there aren't many options. Only one non-binary night, only one or two munches, a couple of athletic clubs. I went to a 
queer no less writing group once and then it seems to have stopped because the organisers moved to London and no one really took it over. It just feels that Manchester has many more options in all areas. Not just queer ones, though the chap at the Queer Lit did say that the area around the northern quarter in Ancoats had the largest per capita queer community outside of Brighton, according to the last census. Which officially I don't know anything about, and only have his word for, but I will inquire, if only for my own interest. Anyway, I went back up to Glasgow on the Tuesday feeling somewhat more confident about the move. My last meet-up with the non-binary group up there wasn't anywhere near as emotional as I'd expected, and there's only a couple of last things I need to do in Glasgow which I'm feeling a bit more comfortable with now, far much more than I was feeling just two weeks ago. Last weekend I was in London, because as I say, it's not just me moving. I'm flat-sharing again, with Laura again. Hopefully it'll be longer than two months this time, although she's had enough of London-based letting agents for a while, so there's hope there. So, I, as I said earlier, the move itself ended up being less of a stress than she'd feared, although it did involve her gently suggesting I was hyper-focusing on cleaning a fridge a bit too intensively. What can I say? I like cleaning fridges. My time in London area was quite productive. I finally went to Havering Borough, including both Romford and Upminster. If you listen to my London North East podcast, you'll know it was one of the areas I'd almost certainly never visited, so I was potting blind. I mean, not that having been there once makes me any more of an expert, but I have now at least seen the outside of Upminster Windmill, and twice been past Emerson Park Railway Station, one of the least used in the whole of the London area. Because little things like that amuse me. It looks it too. So many things to see and do in a single track railway. True brunette. Going back to Romford or something. I mean, I'm glad I went, but the only reason I'd go back is because I've got a friend in the borough who'd take me to some of the craft beer places. She contributed to one of my pods on beer, actually. But she was busy that day that I was there, sadly. I also, as mentioned earlier, went to Southwark Park Run. It takes place in Southwark Park, a short stagger from Surrey Keys Railway Station and a quick five minutes on the train from Wapping, where I was overnighting. Wapping Station, by the way, has ridiculously narrow platforms. I know why. It's because it's built in a tunnel and there was nowhere else to put them, but still. Anyway, the park is quite nice. It's large enough for a three-lap park run with considerable space to spare. It has a decent-sized lake and it's nicely flat. I had a wander around it Friday afternoon before doing the run for real the next day. It's almost entirely on very smooth tarmac, aside from the start, which is on grass, very wide start and a couple of very short sections on other artificial surfaces. Definitely one of the most barefoot-friendly parkruns I've done outside Sheffield Castle. Not that anyone there seems to have noticed, with one minor downside. I did a slower time than at Peel the previous week, by about 40 seconds, not because I was any slower in and of myself, but because it's incredibly popular. It doesn't matter how wide the start is, when there are 511 of you going to the same place, that first kilometre is going to be incredibly congested and slow biggest parkrun I've ever taken part in. Would do again, but would stand in a different place at the start next time. Anyway, me and Laura had a very nice Flixbus trip back. Lots of legroom, and Laura seems to have settled in well. It's a bigger place than she's used to. Hopefully the Wi-Fi is good enough for her needs. It's going to be strange to share my living space with someone again. And while we do get along really well, we are very different people with particular foibles. Hopefully the living space will be big enough to mitigate for that, and things like the fridge. Mind you, we managed five for two months in a flat with a kitchen the size of a small toilet, so I don't foresee any problems. 
and another reason for the move is so that we can motivate each other to do the things, including keeping fit and providing each other with impetus and a poke where necessary. I'm fully aware that bit will be more from her side to me than vice versa, but in principle, it's a shared goal. Final thing to say about the move, something I passed over at the start of the pod about location. So, leaving Glasgow means I lose being three minutes walk from a Greg's, a lovely beer shop, several small supermarkets and a B&M, one of those shops that sells budget versions of pretty much everything, if you know how to find it. And that's sad. However, flat in Manchester has three small supermarkets within staggering distance, a rail ale pub I can see from the flat and at least another four pubs, craft beer bars or brew houses within staggering distance again, and I mean, yes, I lose the B&M. My nearest is a mile and a half away in the delightful suburb of Cheatham Hill. But I gain the city centre of the UK's second biggest city within eight minutes. This, for me, is unheard of riches and something that may well be a double-edged sword, especially for my finances. But I think, despite my initial fears, which I absolutely had to go through to get to the position I'm in, I think... Everything is going to be all right. I've been offline this past week or two, not just because of all the moving, both house and literally, well, moving around the country, but because I've been having problems with my phone again. It started a couple of weeks ago when I charged my phone and nothing seemed to happen. This coincided with my podcast app starting to get very battery draining. What was previously losing me a couple of percentage points was dropping me about 30%. Once I got it to charge, it did the whole random, the charge it says you've got isn't the same as the charge it says when you charge it with the phone off thing that it was doing around the time of my Cypress trip. Ditto the dying when it's on 62% thing. I managed to eke it out as long as possible, but last Friday when I was visiting the delights of Havering in Southwark Park, it gave in. It claimed to be charging, but on the rare occasions I could switch it on, it booted up for a few seconds and then died again. There is thus no proof that I ran barefoot around Southwark Park Run. I guess you've got to have been there. Now, important point to note, my phone isn't just a personal tool for perving on my Instagram friends. You know who you are. My job, my actual paid career, requires two-factor authentication for many of the tools I use, including logging on through their VPN in the first place to the Worms network. Now, some of them use an authenticator app, which I could have replicated in a web browser add-on, if I were to be allowed to install web browser add-ons on my work computers. However, actually logging on itself, the only option is to have a text message sent to the phone, which obviously wouldn't be of any use at all. On the Sunday, I went into Manchester City Centre and dumped it off in a mobile phone repair shop to see if they could fix it. And fortunately, when I went back the next day, it had been fixed. A dodgy connection with the battery was causing a short in the system. So now I'm on my fourth battery in three months. It seems to be holding up okay. Not brilliantly, but it's definitely a kick up the backside for me to get a new phone. Well, new to me. I have a habit of buying reconditioned phones. The one I have was already a year or so old when I got it in May 2019, so it's getting on a bit. It's just, well, phones are so expensive or at least the phones I want are so expensive, even reconditioned. I've never even spent even half that much on a phone before. Enter my mother, who said, and I quote, If you need a new one, let me know. All your inheritance money is just waiting here. When asked if she knew how much phones cost, she said, Well, I have got a lot more money than you think. 
I've not taken her up on this offer yet, though it does make me feel a little like a middle-class teenager being funded through life by her parents. It's another reminder, albeit in part because I'm quite privileged and I do find that slightly awkward when I'm doing podcasts, especially ones I did during the pandemic, that everything is going to be all right. I don't know how often you pay attention to the journeys you take regularly. I'm always aware of how easy it is to switch off when everything is so familiar, and I talk about this every time someone asks me about hometown travel. One of the trips I've taken semi-often over the last two years is the train between Glasgow and All Points South. And I was on this train last Thursday, sat by the window, and we passed Carstairs, and I suddenly remembered something I keep feeling on that stretch of line. See, Carstairs is very much a liminal space to me. While not the furthest station from Glasgow in the old Strathclyde passenger transport network, and by inference the Glasgow commuter belt, I don't know what it is. Well, Barhill, clearly, but in more practical considerations, maybe air? But Carstairs is quite particular. It's where the West Coast Main Line splits between the Glasgow branch and the Edinburgh branch. North of here, even though it's still quite rural, has a very definite vibe of Glasgow is nearby, especially as you pass the Lanark branch and then Carluke Railway Station. But south of here? It starts immediately after the junction, in fact. The Edinburgh line joins from the left, single track at this point, oddly, and then the merge line immediately crosses over the River Clyde on a bridge. And everything feels different somehow. Even though it's the same fields, the same roads, the same countryside, once I cross that bridge, I feel like I'm out with Gladstone's popular central belt and I'm very much in a much more remote rural setting. The land here is quite flat and very green. It's farming country, what might well be arable fields stretching out for miles. In the distance, there are mist-covered hills, but still far enough away to not warrant attention. A couple of small villages are passed their railway stations long since closed. Indeed, because Carstairs itself is only accessible from Glasgow, the Edinburgh branch is partway through the longest stretch of railway line in the country without a railway station. Although there's no service that operates between Lockerbie and Kirk Newton, you'd probably have to backtrack through Edinburgh if you wanted to do it. As you move on, though, you have the strange sense that you're going up. The land is gradually rising around you. Each crossing of the Clyde shows it meandering more and narrowing. Country lanes provide the road transport here, rather than fast-moving A roads. Cows become the order of the day. Although still distant, we seem to be heading straight towards the wind farms high on the distant hills. And those hills start to get inexorably closer, and as we follow the lanes we see them climb up the land, and it's clear we're following suit. The villages become less prevalent, and before long it's more occasional buildings rather than the trappings of civilization. The open fields of Carstairs become steeper, less pedicured and more bushy. Sheep replace cows, and before long, the fields themselves are divided by dry stone walls. The lanes become mere farm tracks, and you can feel the landscape closing in. We turn a corner, and of all things, a motorway is reached, which we end up following closely. In a narrow stretch of flat valley floor are the railway, that fast highway, the old main road now downgraded to a minor byway, and the Clyde, all clinging closely together. And it's that moment when you realise that people have been coming this way for thousands of years. They've been following the Clyde's path, 
walking along the stony and grassy banks as they make their way through the mountains and down to more fertile land either side. And despite all our modern technology, all our technical and engineering abilities to mark our own trails, we still follow these ancient people in making our way across the lowlands of Scotland because it's still the easiest and most practical route to take. The Clyde finally peels off one last time to the right, and it's just us and the road now. Well, us, the roads, lots of heather, and quite a few trees. Even the sheep are rarely seen this deep into the uplands. The land is no longer predominantly bright green, but a mix of pale greens, purples and bluish hues, rising steeply from us on either side. There is nothing else here, we're very definitely much ploughing our way through nowhere. Suddenly we curve to the right and pass Betuk, its summit indicated with a sign by the railway next to a siding. This is deemed to be the highest point of the line, the top of the pass through the hills. And I don't know if it's really the case or it's just psychological, but no sooner have we passed the sign than it does feel like we're starting to head downhill. There's no apparent change in speed, gone are the days of W.H. Auden's steady climb with the gradient against us, but the path does feel slightly different. The landscape around still feels quite enclosed, and in fact is dominated much more by trees rather than bare hillsides, making it feel even more remote. It takes a while to get back into farming territory, and this side of the ridge we don't seem to be following a river. Rather, several unknown streams pass by head east to west, each different, and yet still wandering their way to the same places. The farms do come back soon enough though, along with the cows, and while still not flat, the scene opens out into more rolling hills and mounds rather than high peaks. The distance to the hilltops lengthens out again, and fields once more fill the gaps. Shortly before Lockerbie, the larger settlement since passing through Motherwell, just outside Glasgow, we even pass some heavy industry, at speed, so I can't tell if it's construction or manufacturing, but it's of that ilk. It's a very picturesque journey of maybe 40 minutes, and contrasts quite strongly with the flat plains of the Esk Valley, some 15 minutes or so further down the line, where again we run parallel to and then cross over the motorway, except here it's in the middle of a bare floodplain, rather than an ancient, enclosed mountain pass. I wanted to mention this journey simply because I was conscious too that it's not one I'll be doing quite as often anymore, so I felt a kind of need to concentrate on it. That I didn't feel too emotional about it, nor have any kind of sense of loss, suggests here too that everything is going to be alright. It's been a bit of a bad month, well, year, for many reasons, and in many respects. From environmental crises to cultural repressions, increases in poverty and hate crime, wars and political, media, narrow-minded obsessions, it does feel like the world is getting a worse place to live in for most people. But this is not the episode for that. The news might well be largely bleak, but in response to my questioning for this pod, V has directed me to a website called Positive News, that's positive.news, which wants to show that despite everything that's going on, there are things to raise a smile, to make you feel, you know, a little bit optimistic at least. So what can I pull out recently that will give the feeling that everything is going to be alright in the end, hopefully? Well, let's start with something a little serious. Climate change. Except that it turns out people are fighting back. 
16 young people aged between 5 and 22 raised a lawsuit against the Montana state government in the USA, claiming that Montana's preference for fossil fuels over renewable energy was directly contributing to detrimental health and therefore contravention of people's rights to a healthy environment. Montana has large fossil fuel reserves, it must be noted, but the state's government argument was, yeah, it's not that much holistically, we're not that big a problem. Evidently, it's a problem locally in Montana, though, as, perhaps surprisingly, the young people won. This sets a legal precedent, in the USA at least, for a clean environment. It remains to be seen what, in practical terms, this means, or if anything will actually change, but it's interesting that this does at least set a ball rolling, something to keep an eye on. Staying in environmental-related news, earlier this month the shortlist for the UK's Tree of the Year was announced. Now, this is a competition, if that's the right word, to find a tree that encapsulates something important about place, history or concept. Each year has a theme, so this year's was urban, and there's at least one tree from the four constituent parts of the UK in the final shortlist. I was first made aware of this competition because a month or two ago I passed through Kelvin Grove Park in Glasgow and came across the Suffrage Oak, which was planted in 1918 by Scottish campaigner for equal education Louise Lumsden to celebrate the first implementation of the right of women to vote. It won the Scottish Tree of the Year in 2015 and there is a plaque to that effect. This year there are 13 trees across the UK nominated, mostly in city parks. Scotland's entry is a huge walnut tree in an out-of-hound shopping retail park in Perth, known as the Highland Gateway. It serves as an easy-to-spot and distinctive waypoint for travellers. Other trees nominated this year include the beaver oak in Belfast at 500 years old. It's possibly the oldest surviving tree in Northern Ireland. The Chelsea Road elm in Sheffield, which hasn't been chopped down despite being an elm. We have serious elm disease in this country because an incredibly rare butterfly has nested in it. The Holm Oak Blitz tree in Exeter, which, as the name suggests, survived a night of German bombing in World War II, despite standing next to a church that was turned to rubble. And the Gorton Park Poplar, nominated because it survived industrial pollution and disease, but I'm only mentioning it in this pod because it's in Manchester. The winner will be announced on the 19th of October and entered into the European Tree of the Year, knew that was a thing. That such competitions exist made me hopeful that at least some people care deeply enough about the natural environment enough to celebrate it. Moving elsewhere, reports from South Asia are that the tiger populations are increasing. India has seen a 6% increase over the last year and the population there is believed to be a shade under 3,700, which is about three quarters of the entire world's population of tigers. A much smaller number reside in neighbouring Bhutan, about 131. While this seems pitiful, this is a rise of 27% since 2015, and that the population is rising is seen as a good start to the conservation programmes and management of better interactions between tigers and humans, who are, after all, their biggest predator. Moving into science, my last podcast was on the rise of AI. While I concentrated in that pod on its use in collating and writing blog posts, AI is much more than just a glorified travel listicle maker. Two benefits of AI have been identified in the past month on a scientific level. Firstly, environmentalists in the UK have been using it to quickly scan and differentiate over 3,000 hours of audio and video that they set up not just to identify, but also track many animal species present around the edges of London's rail network. 
This thus makes it much, much easier to see how much and what wildlife there is out there, making conservation efforts that much more simple and more effective and directed to the right place, and something that humans would have taken far longer to do and identify. Secondly, doctors at Lund University in Sweden have been using AI to improve incidence of detecting breast cancer. A small study directly compared performance of AI against that of trained radiographers and found that the AI reported 20% more cancers than the humans and, importantly, without any increase in false positives. It also reduced the amount of time that the radiologists themselves needed to check the screens by over 40%, around 44 apparently. Now, it was just a small study and needs to be replicated by others, but if it holds up, it's going to be an enormous breakthrough in screening, especially early screening, and could then be used and adapted to find other cancers with hopefully equally beneficial results. And finally, when I was growing up, the evening news programmes always had an and finally item, something light-hearted and quirky to end the broadcast with a smile. Someone suggested the early 90s recession killed the idea off. But this story, I think, would be the archetypal and finally, and I hope it makes you a little less angsty about the world. In the Welsh town of Porthmadog, a lunchtime traffic jam made the news. Normally, of course, traffic congestion is caused by roadworks, a badly parked car, or just the sheer volume of cars on the road stopping at traffic lights. Uh, this one, however, was caused when a swan took a wrong turning, got trapped on the wrong side of a wall, and ended up wandering down the high street. It seems people were careful not to cause it any distress, but regardless, it was dismissive of all attempts to redirect it, because it's a swan, and they don't care about people. It ended up being followed proactively by a bus. It didn't try to board it. And after a short while, it managed to find a hole in the wall and slid through. Sadly, there is no pub in Portsmouth called the Swan Inn. Yet. Stories like these prove that despite all that's bad in the world, there is always time to smile and be thankful. And that everything is going to be all right. Well, that's about all for now. Join me next time for what is planned to be a quite informative episode, though it does require me doing some transcription checking, which is the unthrilling part of podcasting. Until then, oh, you know by now. And if you're feeling off colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Glasgow studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. The theme music is Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. Previous episodes are available on your podcast service of choice and show notes are available on my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, tweet me at rtwbarefoot, email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com or look for me on Instagram, Discord, YouTube or Facebook. Uh, don't forget to sign up for my newsletter, and if you really like what I do, you can slip me the cost of a beer through my Patreon in return for access to rare extra content. Until next time, have safe journeys. Bye for now. Bye.